Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, You can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. Hello, America, and happy Friday. What a big, big news day. Just a little bit ago, a jury came back in the city of Washington, D.C. Two guilty verdicts. Steve Bannon has been convicted of two misdemeanors of contempt of Congress. He can face up to two years in prison, as little as 30 days, and as much as $2,000 in fines. That's hot off the press. It just happened a few minutes ago. We've got a great show for you. And before we get to our great guests, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about a story we broke this morning the aftermath of the final televised January 6th House Committee hearings. But first, let's give you the lineup today. We've got an amazing show. You will not be disappointed. First up, the great epidemiologist from Yale University. He's now Professor Emeritus at Yale University. Dr. Harvey Risch is with us. He has a lot to say about what we're seeing in the science, not the politics, not the policy, not the media, not the social media in the science of what's going on with people like Joe Biden and Dr. Fauci and countless others like them getting infected with the coronavirus, even though they have three or four shots, two vaccines, two boosters in some cases, certainly in the case of the president and Fauci. He has a great scientific theory what's going on. He's arguing that the current vaccines may be interfering with the body's ability to fight the latest edition of the coronavirus, which has morphed from the ones that the original vaccines were based on. Interesting thing worth listening to. He's always got an amazing approach on what's going on in science. One of the most respected people in the world. I have so many people come up to me and say, boy, I wish Dr. Harvey Risch was in charge of the infectious disease division. We'd be so much better off today. So we're going to start with that today. And we got a great second guest too. You may have never heard of him before. He's a former career foreign service officer, now the senior research fellow for the Border Security and Immigration Center at the Heritage Foundation, Simon Hankinson. He is doing some great work on border security, on immigration, but he had an incredible column the other day in Fox News exposing all those celebrities, all those elitists who said, you know what, I'm renouncing my U.S. citizenship because of Donald Trump or abortion or whatever the grievance that these liberal elitists had. Guess what? Simon went and checked None of them did it. It was all a bunch of smoke, and he's called them to account in a really great column. We're going to talk to him about that. He's actually an officer who actually presided over a couple of examples of people renouncing their citizenship. There are people that have reasons to do it, often tax-related. But Simon is really going to bring us inside the fake resignation from America, all those people who say they're leaving but never do it. It's all just political spin like we see so often. That's going to be a great show. Now, before we get to that, 
I want to take on two thoughts. Let's go back to the Bannon verdict, which we started the show with. Steve Bannon is likely facing some prison time. It's possible. Depends on the pre-sentence report. Peter Navarro still facing a trial in the fall. May take note of this. Maybe he'll find a plea deal to avoid prison time. But an interesting opportunity there. But there is a long-term effect to this. Let's put this into perspective. Before today, before Steve Bannon was convicted, it had been 88 years. It was 1934, the last time a successful conviction for contempt of Congress was secured in any federal court in America. 88 years. There is a new precedent during most of the last decade when Democrats were found in contempt. There was a rope-a-dope and the Justice Department wasn't willing to prosecute them. The Bannon verdict creates a new expectation in Washington that whether you're a Republican or Democrat, whether the Congress is in Democrat hands as it is now or Republican hands as it may be next year, there's going to be an expectation that recalcitrant witnesses face prosecution, conviction, and prison. That is the Bannon standard, one that has been kind of fuzzy for most of the last 88 years, particularly Democrats like Eric Holder who escaped it. But Democrats, be on notice. This may feel good now, but next year, if Republicans are in charge of the House and they have oversight hearings and a Democrat doesn't want to testify, oh, wait, guess what? You may just see a prosecution of a Democrat. If not, this argument that we've been making that there really is a two-tier system of justice, it will be so overt and obvious, it will shake the foundations of our country. Democratic recalcitrant witnesses are going to have to be the treat of the same as Steve Bannon in order for us going forward to feel like there is an equal system of justice, a system of justice that is blind. So just keep that in mind, Democrats. You might be giddy today. You might not be as giddy in the future about this because it actually does come with some consequences. And I think that that's something we all ought to consider. Now, the second thing I want to turn to quickly is, as we reported, overnight, the January 6th primetime summer spectacular TV hearings, which by the way, weren't bonanzas when it came to ratings or viewership. But the primetime hearings came to an end last night. The song was the same as it was in the beginning. Believe us, trust us, even if we don't have the evidence, Donald Trump really wanted violence on January 6th. And of course, I've been saying from the very beginning, I wrote a column at the beginning of this, there is a challenge for the January 6th commission, the committee. And that is, if you're going to make that argument, how do you explain the fact that President Trump offered 10,000 or 20,000 National Guard troops to prevent violence in there? Who would go to the Capitol or try to send their supporters to the Capitol to commit violence if they knew there was a massive military force waiting for them to put them down? The J6 committee never, ever answered that question. And quite frankly, there's another big question they didn't answer. We now know from all the reporting at Justin News and all those Capitol Police documents that I've been able to get you and put into public that we broke on justinews.com, that the Capitol Police, in some cases, the political minders that supervise the Capitol Police on behalf of Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, well, they got warnings, repeated, detailed, consistent, endless warnings, starting December 21st, before Christmas 2020, all the way to January 6th, that there was going to be violence, that the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers were making threats that the violence, they had maps of the tunnels, there was efforts to maybe penetrate the Capitol. All of that was known. And the second question this committee did, because they made it off limits, what did Nancy Pelosi know? What did Chuck Schumer know? Uh, and when did they know it? That's the first question. And two, how did a $600 million a year police force that's supposed to guard and is funded to guard one of the most important institutions get overrun by a bunch of yahoos 
who stormed the Capitol on January 6th. If those were terrorists or militants or a foreign army, all of our members of Congress could have been dead. Those two questions weren't answered. They weren't even addressed. They weren't even dug into as part of these hearings. But let's go back to the question that the Democrats pose with the American public. Trust us, American public. Donald Trump wanted violence to occur that day. And as you know, they were able to put on a one-sided presentation. There's not much doubt about that. I want to take you into something that few people have noticed. It's a Pentagon memo. It's been out there, but no one is focused on this portion of the memo. It was written by the Inspector General of the Pentagon, an independent watchdog, so someone who's nonpartisan, and went into all the things the Pentagon did to assist the Capitol or offer assistance to the Capitol. It's a really detailed report, really well done. But in that report, there is a recounting of a meeting on January 3rd, 2021. That is three days before the riots occurred. It's in the White House. President Trump's here. Acting Defense Secretary Chris Miller's here. General Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, is there. Now, it's about another subject, but as would be expected when you get the top brass together, the question of what would happen at the January 6th rally, which everybody was aware of at that point, was on everyone's mind. And there's a discussion. And I'm just going to read you the report because it recounts exactly what General Milley, by the way, no fan of President Trump, told the IG. Let me just read it to you. Mr. Miller and General Milley met with President Trump at the White House at 5.30 p.m. on January 3rd, 2021. The primary topic they discussed was unrelated to the scheduled rally, but General Milley told us at the end of the meeting, the president told Mr. Miller that there would be a large number of protesters on January 6th, 2021, and Mr. Miller should ensure sufficient National Guard or soldiers would be there to make sure it was a safe event. General Milley told us that Mr. Miller responded to the president and assured him, we've got a plan and we've got it covered. We've got a plan, we've got it covered. So when you hear the Democrats saying Donald Trump wanted mayhem, he knew it was going to be bad and he didn't tell anyone, it's not true. Three days before he said, clearly, he gave an explicit order to the top military brass, both on the civilian and uniform side. Fellas, now... Hear me out. There's going to be a lot of people there. I want it to be a safe event. And he was assured, don't worry about it. We got it covered. May explain why on the afternoon of the 6th, he wasn't thinking about what was going on there right away because he probably thought it was under control when, in fact, it wasn't. So take that into account. Take a look at it. It's an important piece of information that the Democrats never let out in these hearings. The Republicans really haven't done a good job offering it either. But it is an essential piece of evidence one that I think is so important for American public. Before you listen, you're going to make whatever decision you make about President Trump's behavior before, during, after the riots. I get that. But you should have all the facts. And right now, this has been a one-sided proceeding. And that's why we wrote this story today. Check it out. All right, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, first up, Dr. Harvey Risch from Yale University, the professor emeritus, one of the great epidemiologists in the world, He's going to join us. We're going to talk about what's going on and why are so many people who are double, triple, quadruple vaccinated still getting COVID-19? Well, I have that answer for you right after this commercial break. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay-up letters. Millions, I say. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why the IRS targets you and not millionaires? Well, because millionaires have tax lawyers. You don't, you'll pay up. Plus interest and penalties. 
You need Tax Network USA, and you need them now. Tax Network USA has brilliant war room strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. Like a preferred direct line to the IRS, they know which agents to deal with and who to avoid. It's not all bad news for you because Tax Network USA learned of a special limited time IRS offer. They're willing to waive $1 billion in penalties if you qualify. So schedule your free confidential consultation to see if you qualify for this limited time IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000 or visit tnusa.com slash just news. That's tnusa.com slash just news. Folks, Field of Greens is the healthiest thing I do every day, and I want you on this journey with me. Why? It's literally one scoop a day. It tastes great. I love the fruit flavors particularly, and it's completely improved my life and my health. This is nutrition the way nature intended. When I began taking a hard look at why I wasn't feeling good and why I felt unhealthy, why I was gaining weight, why I was losing energy, it wasn't just because I had hit my 50s. No, it was because I wasn't getting the right amount of fruit and vegetables in my diet. And listen, it's, I'm just too busy to go to the store, clean up the vegetables, cook uh, uh, vegetable dinners, and make sure I hit the fruit. A field of greens stepped in. One scoop of powder in my drink or on my eggs in the morning, and boom, I was off and feeling better. And suddenly, I was losing weight. I was sleeping better. My metabolism went up. My blood sugar went down. My cholesterol went down, and my weight went down. And my doctor said, hey, whatever you're doing, keep it doing. You know what that is? It's Field of Greens. That's what I've been doing. Field of Greens is radically different. Each organic fruit and vegetable was medically chosen to support heart and vital organ health. I trust Field of Greens to keep me healthy. I promise you, you're going to love this product. But if for any reason you don't, they'll give you 100% money back guarantee. Now, you're going to get 15% off your first order plus free rush shipping because of the incredible partnership we have here at Just the News with Brick house nutrition and of course field of greens all you got to do to take advantage of this offer visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code just news that's promo code just news at fieldofgreens.com don't wait go to fieldofgreens.com today use the promo code just news for 15 percent off all right folks welcome back for the commercial break i'm always excited to have this next guest on i learn something every time and you get a dose of common sense about medicine that seems to be missing so often in the public health space today. He is Dr. Harvey Risch, a professor emeritus at the Yale Public School of Health. Dr. Risch, great to have you on the show today. Pleasure to be with you. You had a fascinating conversation with the good folks at Epoch Times earlier this week, and I found it so newsworthy. I want to dive into this a little bit. We're seeing people like President Joe Biden, four times vaccinated, and Anthony Fauci, four times vaccinated, getting the coronavirus despite those vaccinations. You had a really interesting scientific explanation for what may be going on, what the vaccine may be doing right now to people in this wave of the coronavirus. Could you walk us through that? It was absolutely fascinating. Sure. So there's there's two ways to think about what's going on. The first part is what we see in people who get vaccinated. So the the, the benefit and harms of the vaccines evolve over time. It's not Yes, or, it's not a yes or no question at all. And what we see is that after the first, say, two shots, the basic uh, plan, that after each shot, there's a period of about seven to 10 days when people are at increased risk for adverse events, including getting COVID. After that period, there's a span 
of somewhere between four and 16 weeks, during which there, in general, is benefit from the vaccines in reducing risks of getting COVID and other outcomes like hospitalization and mortality. And that depends on which shot we're talking about, whether it's the second or the first booster or the second booster, because it's, that window shortens with each successive booster. But after that window elapses, then the benefits of the vaccines go towards zero and cross zero and become negative, meaning that they increase the risk of getting COVID after that long period has elapsed. And they also increase the risks of hospitalization and mortality after an even longer period has elapsed. And that's what we've observed. Now, the question of why this happens is not completely well understood, but the virologists that I've spoken with say that the vaccines, the, the mRNA vaccines, are a sufficient jolt to the immune system that when the, when the virus changes, when it mutates, and uh, a new strain that really isn't so well covered by what the original vaccines, um, you know, reacted to, um, or what they are, the anti antibodies that those vaccines made reacted to, that what happens is that the, the immune system makes antibodies based on what the vaccine was, not antibodies that work on the new strain, the mutated strain that's the current one. And so what happens is, though those antibodies still bind to the virus, but they don't bind so well, and what they, they do more is to cover up the binding. So the immune system is also will make uh, antibodies addressing the, the new virus, but it's making the, the old ones from the vaccine as much so or more so. And those old antibodies are covering up the surface of the virus, keeping the, the virus from getting attacked by the new antibodies that the immune system is making. And that's called immune, uh, immune imprinting, and it has some other names. And it increases the virus's ability to escape the new antibodies and to, and to continue to, to work as viruses do to infect and, and reproduce and, and get out and, and transmit and all of that that we've seen. So the vaccines, after a long period of time, when they're no longer so effective with the newer strains of, of the virus, are interfering with the ability of the immune system to take out the virus itself, the immune system itself. And that's what happens over a long period of time. So the cure actually becomes the cause at some point, contributing to the cause of new infections. Yes. Really remarkable moment. Have we seen this in other vaccine programs in earlier times in history? Or they don't work, are not, are not true in either direction, because you have to account for the time period and for, you know, which part of the time period you're talking about and for what kind of events, whether it's infection and transmission or hospitalization and mortality, which have somewhat different time courses. Yeah, no, that's it. Any time in history before this, have we seen a vaccine have this sort of effect on people where it didn't quite work the way we thought and actually started to interfere with the body's ability to fight future infections after a mutation of the virus? Well, yes, I think the dengue fever vaccine did that. It was pulled from the market. And there, there have been others. I'm not a vaccinologist, so I can't really give you the full repertoire of that, but, but I think that has happened. There was a moment about a week ago, 10 days ago, after uh, Anthony Fauci recovered from his bout with COVID, we're glad he did, where he said, hey, you know what? The truth of the matter is this isn't that good at preventing the vaccine. We were wrong about that. Still good about preventing you from getting a worse version of it, he claimed. 
That evolution is a significant evolution for where Dr. Fauci was just six months ago. What do you think is driving his acknowledgement of that? And where might he end up in this debate over vaccines six months from now? Well, I think he's seen too much coverage of vaccine failure in the, the mainstream, the legacy media, that the message has gotten out that the vaccines aren't perfect. And so he's basically being forced to admit that they're in perfect nature. And, you know, and the claim that, well, they still work against the, the recent strains BA4, BA5, the ones that are circulating now, uh, as a, a, second, a first booster or a second booster, is only that the, those boosters have not been in widespread usage for long enough to get to the six, eight, 12 weeks of time after the shot to see how their efficacy wanes and what harms do occur. I think to, for him to say that he would have been worse is confirmation bias, that he is not citing any evidence that he would have been worse if he had not been vaccinated, and that the empirical data on that are not strong yet, but there are some indications that the long-term hazards from the vaccines uh, after their period of benefit you know, wanes or, or ends, that they do increase risk of those other events also like things like clotting or heart attacks, strokes, things like that, that we're seeing in the, um, in the, the, the VAERS data, right? Uh, that from the insurance company data. If you're sitting in the CDC or the NIH and these other places, and you're at this moment now, and the, you know, the data has to be visible to everyone. You can't be the only one that can see this data. It's got to be visible to everyone. I've seen Dr. Burks change her views a little bit on the vaccine recently. Dr. Fauci, big change. What's the right thing to do? If you're a public health policy professor, I'm sure everyone went into this wanting to do well. It hasn't worked the same way. What's the right thing now? What would you recommend the CDC, the NIH, the FDA do to start to adapt so that we get a better outcome in the future? They should all retire. <laughs> Just get out of the way, huh? <laughs> yes. <laughs> they were wrong. They, they were wrong for two years. Um, they, uh, the regulatory agencies are all corrupted you know, from their, their pharma uh, involvements and control and uh, the, the FDA and, and the CDC panels that have reviewed the evidence that cherry-picked and, and evidence that, that represented, um, you know, uh, antibody bridging uh, as a valid method for determining vaccine efficacy, you know, you know is plausibility being waved in your face without any real scientific evidence of, of benefit and doing studies of 1,000 children and claiming that there's no harm, you know, a study that, that takes a month or six weeks or some short period of time. This is all tricks of the trade that, uh, that drug companies have perfected to avoid being scrutinized for the harms that, that their products will eventually cause. Yeah. And, that, and they're indemnified. And the That's a big thing here, right? They're predominantly right, right. indemnified the way this vaccine program was developed. All right, we get the current leadership out. The president calls you up one day and says, Dr. Rish, give me a plan for going forward what we need to do. Do we go back and invent different types of vaccines like the one we do every year with influenza? Do we say right now it's not worth a vaccine and we just work on treatments and therapeutics? What's the right approach if you could erase the entire drawing board and start over? What could we do at this moment that would disrupt the constant flow of coronavirus that we're dealing with? Well, the fundamental problem is the lack of independence of the regulatory agencies, that 
we have to create a system of incentives for the regulatory agencies that keeps the individuals from thinking that if they want to move up the economic ladder, that their only place for a job is with a drug company after they retire from the government or they leave the government. And that is the, the corruption, pure and simple, that they are, the regular, regulators are captured by the companies they regulate. So that must must be removed. There must be some incentives to, rem- to remove that problem altogether. Um, that means removing conflicted people uh, who, who have taken funding from pharma as the, the reviewers on these panels, these so-called independent experts that, that come in to do the reviews for FDA and CDC. They're not independent by any means. Uh, Dr. Fauci has... has filled these panels, the NIH panels that are advisory to FDA, say, with people who have uh, pharma involvements in the things that they regulate and, and that they decide on. The, in the original remdesivir hydroxychloroquine panel, there were 18 people with conflicts of interest out of about 54 on the panel. A second panel later that summer had 20 people discussing regulating hydroxychloroquine, and 11 of them had pharma conflicts, the majority of the people. This would not stand in any normal ethical environment, any scientific ethical environment. So there was no ethics review of this. It was done, as a matter of fact, because he was able to get away with it. And that is the kind of corruption that needs to be removed from this whole process. The people have to be independent. They have to have scientific standards that are consistent and long-term and recognized outside of drug companies as being appropriate science to, to use. And if the products cannot meet those, that level of scrutiny, then they should not be approved. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's plain everyday science and honesty that matters here. All throughout this, we kept telling trust the science, but once the science didn't back up the public policy health decisions, they just abandoned the science, and now they're in really a political spin job. How concerning is it to you that this virus seems to mutate very quickly and very substantially? Have we seen a virus that acts this aggressively in the three-year window? Well, the cold virus does. The flu kind of does. You know, I think we're beginning to reevaluate the efficacy of of the flu vaccines because at best, we typical years, their reduced risk of getting the flu by maybe half, 40 to 60 percent is the typical range. And, and that is when we have six months lead time, when we can see what are the prevailing flu strains in Australia, say, and know that they're coming here eventually in the next season and have time to develop vaccines to address those strains. With coronavirus, it's happening here in real time and it evolves here in real time and doesn't give us a six month time to prepare new vaccines. So by the time we actually have vaccines, they're out of date. The flu vaccine, as I said, is not all that effective, and we're, we don't even know now whether it reduces the severity of the infections when people get the flu in spite of being vaccinated. And, you know, so I think that there is a lot of suspicion now that we realize the trust that we've put into our regulatory agencies has been misplaced. That general generalization now goes back to the the flu vaccines and so on and we need to scrutinize how they were approved and what standards were used for them and really whether they show as much benefit as we've been led to believe yeah such an important thing and you're not anti-vaccine at all right you're just looking at the data scientifically right not at all i've taken 
whole piles of vaccines, including in, during the last year. I, you know, I had my shingles vaccine, pneumonia vaccine. You know, I, I don't know for proof that those were beneficial, but I went on an educated guess that it was a reasonable thing to do. <clears throat> my kids have had all their childhood vaccines and, and so on. <clears throat> vaccines have been important for various parts of life and and the uh, you know infectious climate that we live in in society and and but we need more careful scrutiny of them to know what their adverse events are and to know how those adverse effects compare to the benefit that we expect to get if you're sitting across from someone today and they say doctor should i take this COVID 19 vaccine or my booster what would you tell them right now again it's what we've been saying for two years that if they're at high risk of a bad outcome from the COVID because of obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease, immunocompromised, chronic kidney disease, you, you know, uh, cancer survivor. Those are things that suggest that they should have a frank and honest consultation with a medical doctor who can help them evaluate the risks versus benefits. For everybody else, there really isn't a reason to, be, to take the vaccines, to continue to take the vaccines. Those are wise words. As you step back now, is there any force strong enough to overcome these regulatory agencies and to get them to a different paradigm? Or are they on a course that can't be course corrected right now? I guess it would take someone as strong as a president saying, we just got this wrong and we got to do it. But do you see a will or a force in the medical community to reevaluate this, given the moment we find ourselves in, which is a vaccine that doesn't stop the infection it was made to stop? Well, I think that this is going through the courts, and there are dozens and dozens of cases now that, and are only accelerating, increasing, that are pushing back against this because that is the most effective avenue at the moment for stopping this and and letting the society catch its breath and figure out everything that's happened and, and what it needs to do. Yeah, such a good point. In a wise way of looking at it, I think that's where things are going to we're going to get a lot of insights from the courts in the near future. And it seems like they're increasingly siding on the side of people who have real objections or concerns about that. You're one of the best in epidemiology. I want to ask you about a big moment yesterday. There was a mention of a breakthrough case or someone came back from a foreign trip with polio in New York. A lot of concern about that. Very rare. We haven't seen it in a very long time. Anything to be concerned about or is this just one of those anomaly cases? I think somebody was in a country where there were cases in a part of a community that is not uh, as vaccinated as, as normal parts of society are. And I think that it's likely to stay in that community if they, you know, their community here is, is, is a similar, you know, inadequately vaccinated part of society. I don't think it's likely to get out of that community. I think that most people today are, are vaccinated for polio and it's an effective vaccine. And uh, so I'm not looking to, to see that any, much of anything is going to come of this. And I think that we have been fear-mongered on infectious disease cases now for well more than, than two and a half years that this fear-mongering has gone back at least 30 or 40 years over everything that we've been led to believe if one case occurs, the, the, the pandemic is right around the corner and everybody should duck into their house and, and hide under the table. And, you know, I mean, that, that's the level of fear because fear does wonders for, for getting people to do what, what you want them to do for whatever reasons you want them to do it. And I think that people just need 
to wait and watch and see that in almost all cases, nothing much happens from this. This includes monkeypox, by the way, that monkeypox is not an accelerating infection that's going out into everywhere. Yeah, there is a little bit of growth of monkeypox, but you're still not seeing this as a significant pandemic risk or anything like that, right? It's not exponential. The individuals who, who contract it can more or less identify who they got it from. You know, contact tracing works for, for this. Uh, it requires a very substantial kind of intimate kind of dose that makes it a one-on-one thing and not somebody walking into a room and spreading it to 20 people. Uh, you know, it, it's a much different and more manageable illness. And it, by and large, it's not fatal. It, the strain from Africa that's here is, I think, the least fatal of all of the various strains of monkeypox. The, the worst that happens from it is it, could, it would be disfiguring. It creates the, the pox lesions that you, know, that you want to avoid if you can. And there's treatment for it. The, the, I forget the name, but, but there, there's an antiviral that works very effectively for treating it. Yeah, so important. You mentioned fear, and I think that's such an important lesson that we made a lot of decisions last two years, much like we did right after 9-11, out of fear rather than science fact or patience. And I think we're going to look back at this time and probably learn a lot from it. I want to just ask one last question, because you've spent a great part of your career in the fight against cancer, early intervention. Are you heartened by the progress that we're making in the war against cancer? Well, you know, the, the war against cancer has been incremental, that here and there, there have been some jumps in knowledge, knowledge about diagnosis and treatment. But by and large, 99% of the science on cancer research is incremental, which means it's not sexy, it's not glamorous. It's, it's plotting increments. But when you look back, you see that those, inc- those daily increments that are, are, are hardly uh, noticeable over 10 or 20 years, then you see that there's been growth in knowledge you know, and treatment. And the ability to treat cancer today is an order of magnitude better for many kinds of cancers compared to what it was in 1990, say. You know, so we are definitely making progress. It's just that if this had been easy to treat, then there wouldn't have been a war on cancer because we would have figured it out, you know? That's right. We'd have an elect already. Yeah. Right. Well, I could tell you, I don't know how many times since the first time I've had the blessing to interview you. So I go out and say, you know that Dr. Rich? I wish he had been Dr. Fauci. <laughs> People around this country so much appreciate your expertise, your level-headedness, and your willingness to challenge the political sentiments when, in fact, they should be scientific sentiments. And on behalf of a grateful country, for all the people who come up to me and say, I love that guy, I just want to pass along their thanks because you do such important work, sir. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to to, uh, speak with you. You as well. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages. Hey, folks, it's John Solomon here. Today, I want to shine a light on AMAC, an organization who's dedicated to America's seniors, but is vital for conservatives of all ages. AMAC stands out by not only advocating for senior issues, but also by pushing for conservative values that affect us all. By joining, you're not just supporting our senior citizens, you're part of a movement defending the freedoms that made this country great and to ensure that we secure our nation's future. Plus, membership brings you exclusive benefits like discounts on travel, dining, and entertainment, and of course, special insurance rates, one of the things I like. Regardless of your age, if you're driven to preserve freedom, AMAC welcomes you. This is about uniting youthful vigor with the wisdom of experience and our quest to keep this country great. 
Sign up now for amac.us slash justnews. And for a limited time, you get a free gift membership for someone else who shares your love for our great nation. Don't miss out on this chance to make a difference from AMAC. Join today at amac.us slash justnews. That's amac.us slash justnews. And extend the invitation to a friend or family member for free. What a great opportunity. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year. And then the inflation data came out. Higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation, and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold, and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it, with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friend, who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group. Text Just News to 989898 right now. All right, folks, welcome back to the commercial break. Our next guest spent nearly a quarter century working in the Foreign Service as a career officer, was a consular officer, then a supervisor. This past week, he wrote an extraordinary op-ed that called bunk on all of those elitists who said they were fleeing the country. Remember all the people are going to renounce their U.S. citizenship? because they didn't like Trump policies or conservative policies or Donald Trump. Well, Simon Hankinson caught him. They never left. They stayed right here. It was all a bunch of baloney. And would you please join me in welcoming Simon Hankinson to the show? Simon, great to have you. John, it's great to be with you. You do such great work as a senior research fellow at the Heritage's Border Security Immigration Center. I want to get to the state of our border and the illegal immigration crisis we have. But first, this op-ed, I know there was a moment when in your prior career, you probably did a handful of renunciation cases. Some people have legitimate reasons for doing it. The ones who have political reasons don't seem to follow through. I think that's the point of your article, right? Well, that's what I found. Um, I, I was just curious when I heard about uh, the, the guy from Green Day. Well, first, I, I was curious that they were still playing because I hadn't heard from them for quite a while. But uh, he said he was going to renounce his, his citizenship in, in London. And I thought, well, I wonder if he, he's going to go through with it. So I looked him up. And of course, it's not the first time he said it. And um, he, he hasn't done it. And then I just started looking up some other people who, who said the same thing. There were so many around the time uh, Trump was elected. And, you know, every time something happens that they don't like, the latest one is uh, the, the Dobbs decision. And yeah, like you said, they're, they're all pretty much full of hot air. I couldn't find one actual ideologically motivated uh, person who renounced. I know there are some. I've, I've encountered a few. Um, but the, the vast majority that I can see are uh, for tax reasons, even though technically you're not supposed to, to do it just for tax reasons. And people who are dual nationals or who, you know, married someone and moved overseas long, long ago. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty interesting. I think a lot of these celebrities just do it for effect to get a little bit of publicity. They never follow through. It's a really great article. Folks, if you haven't seen it, go check it out. It was on foxnews.com. Just really well done and a good reminder that so much of the elitists in this country say a lot of things they never do. Ah, well, John Kerry saying he's going to do better at carbon reduction, drops a whole bunch of carbon out of his private jet. We just have examples day in and day out from the extraordinary hypocrisy. 
and false promises we get from elitists. But Simon, let me take you to your core subject because you do such good work at Heritage. We continue to see illegal migration encounters up over 200,000 a month, even in the summer when they typically slow. We're beginning to see deaths at the border, people who die because of heat or other horrible tragedies on their very tortured journey here. Those are going up. Yet, despite all the statistical evidence, everything that people can see with their eyes, we have a Homeland Security Secretary that keeps telling us, don't worry, the border's secure. We got this thing locked down. Is there any truth to what he's saying? Well, not that I can see. Um, like you, I'm, I'm watching on my, on my TV just lines of people waiting across the Rio Grande, busloads of people, uh, people just milling around with their cell phones trying to figure out you know, which destination they want to go to in the U.S. at taxpayer expense. Um, and then right here in Washington, D.C., we have our own mayor who's complaining about having to house, you know, in, in our D.C. homeless shelters, which are already uh, having problems, people from other countries. Um, and you're getting the mayor of New York City complaining, saying, well, hang on a minute. You know, this is all very well and good when it was out of sight and out of mind. But now it's coming to our cities. Uh, maybe it's not such a great idea. Um, I, we had Corrine Jean-Pierre, I think, the other day on, the, on Air Force One. She said, uh, you know, the, the border is closed. And I just cannot see how they can rationally make that statement. Yeah, it's clearly not possible. And the statistics don't lie, nor do the, the masses. And it's an interesting thing because I, I want to talk about this. One of the long-term consequences to having two or three million illegal migrants enter the country in the early part of the Biden presidency is as they begin to migrate in, in many cases, they're trafficked into the interior of the country with the help of NGOs, charities. They start to go into cities. They put enormous pressure on the social safety net, the taxpayer net. There was even a suggestion that the police department in Ovalde was so worn out from all of the human trafficking incidents that were running through their town that it could have contributed to some of the failures that day. But there is a long-term cost and consequence to this sudden, huge influx of illegal migrants. I guess that may have been at the heart of what the mayor was suggesting, but communities all across this country, red, blue, middle of the country, coasts, are all beginning to fill that cost, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, just to take one figure alone, I think the number of unaccompanied minors, not all of them actually are minors, but let's just say a significant proportion of them are, um, you have 160,000 coming in in a year. That, that's a, a small city. And, and those kids are entitled to education at, at the taxpayer expense, whether or not anyone in their family has ever paid any taxes. Um, we all know that the emergency room is the kind of last resort for people who don't have any health insurance, unfortunately, and that includes people who are here illegally as well as legally on, on visas. Um, and as you say, the, the police, I mean, I, I had another piece out a, a couple of days ago about the, the effect on crime. And uh, you're, you've got it's not an insignificant number when you're talking about a million people. I think the figure is like a million forty nine thousand uh, that have been released into the U.S. Uh, in the last uh, year and a half or so. Out of a million people, in any city of a million people, you're going to have a certain percentage who are not law-abiding citizens, and they're going to commit crimes, and those crimes are going to have to be uh, prosecuted, and that takes taxpayer resources. So right across the board, if, if you let in that many people, um, not all of whom, in fact, the majority of whom are not rich, they don't come in with a lot of means, they're looking for jobs, they're looking for support, it has a cost. Uh, right the way through the system. And as we've seen, the, the Biden administration's aim here is to get them off the border where it's embarrassing, get them into the interior as quickly as possible, 
on uh, parole. You know, parole means uh, you give your word that you're going to follow through with something, show up at court or file an asylum claim. And the statistics show that uh, a decent percentage of them, I think 30 percent didn't bother, according to DHS's own statistics, uh, to even follow up on what they said they would do when they were taken into the country. And then uh, my colleague here at Heritage, um, uh, Tom Homan, was saying that in, on average, nine out of 10 people who pass the so-called credible fear interview never end up getting asylum or any kind of relief because they either don't uh, merit it according to the law, they don't qualify, or they don't even bother to file the paperwork. They just say that they're going to, and then they just don't do it. It is remarkable. I get this question all the time. And, you know, I was alive and kicking and reporting as a reporter back in the 90s when Al Gore and Bill Clinton tried to work hard to rush a bunch of naturalizations before the 1996 election, hoping to get an electoral advantage. And so, you know, a lot of people say this is about election politics long term. Is there any sense of what the real motive of the Biden administration, the Democrats are to take the risk of an open border, take the risk that terrorists or other bad actors are going to be coming across, force these migrants to make a journey to the United States that's controlled by the cartels and human traffickers that involves rape and indentured servitude and large extortion payments. Is there any rationale or clear reason that you think the Democrats are doing this? Well, you know, I was in government for a quarter century, and I always say when people have conspiracy theories that uh, if, if you have a choice between um, incompetence and brilliant Machiavellian strategy, it's usually the former. <laughs> yeah, that's good advice. You know, I, I I don't think they really have a an overarching strategy about electoral politics. I've heard, I think there was a guy um, who wrote a piece in 2000 about the coming Democratic majority, where the idea was that Hispanics will always vote Democrat, Blacks will always vote Democrat. Therefore, the more people we let in over the border, the more Democrats we have, we'll never lose an election. It uh, turned out not to be true because, uh, funnily enough, a lot of Hispanics are uh, traditional values voters. They, they like their families. Uh, they may appreciate uh, their gun rights. They want to pay their taxes and get services. They don't like high crime. They're not particularly big on the woke and the, and the gender and the critical race theory. We just saw Myra Flores in Texas uh, take a, a, a district Republican, I think the first time in, in 100 years, a Mexican-American. Uh, so if that's their gamble, I'm not sure that it's going to pay off in the long run. And honestly, I think that's 3D chess, and they're not even playing 2D chess. They're just playing checkers. Um, I, I suspect that the people running immigration in the White House or running policy are young, woke, um, sort of open borders people who intellectually ideologically believe that it's one big world and we should just accept anyone who wants to come here. And I don't think they have the experience, the travel, uh, the understanding of the way the world works to realize how big the demand is and how expensive it is for the American taxpayer to accept unlimited immigration for an unlimited amount of time. Yeah, that's exactly right. There's an amazing moment in the last 24 hours. We have this story up on Justin News right now. And I think a lot of people are reacting to it because it's such an extraordinary declaration. But the United Nations has dubbed or determined that the U.S. southern border is the, quote, deadliest land crossing in the world. A really remarkable declaration by the International Organization for Migration, which is the U.N. Migration Agency. Your reaction to hearing that? Yeah, I saw that a couple, uh, maybe a week back. And I think the number was about 728 people who died crossing uh, in the United States. Well, I'm a little cynical. I mean, remember the UN uh, has a a human rights commission that is composed of countries that have the worst human rights record in the world. Um, And I suspect that people who highlight that statistic are uh, arguing in favor of 
uh, more open borders and more to be done to, to help people. Now, nobody wants to see people die trying to cross into the United States. No one wants to see people uh, in the desert being trafficked by coyotes, paying $5,000 and being left to die. That that tragedy in San Antonio where 50 people were lost in a, I mean, that's just, it's awful. And it just gives you nightmares to think uh, what kind of heartless people would would be behind something like that. But, they, you know, they're criminals. I mean, they, they sell people drugs. And they take their money to traffic them. So, you know, you don't expect them to be too merciful. Um, but, you know, in terms of the overarching policy, uh, I, I'm a, a Matt Walsh fan. I was listening to his show the other day and he said uh, there's really only two ways that you would have no deaths on the border. And that is if the border is closed or if the border is 100 percent open. As long as you have a couple thousand mile border on both sides uh, that is uh, disastrously partly closed, but mostly open. People are going to take chances. They're going to take risks. And unfortunately, some of them are going to die trying. So some people would say, well, let's just open the borders up and see what happens. I'm not one of those people. I would say, let's enforce the law. Let's treat people with dignity and humanity when they apply for entrance, when they apply for visas, when they apply for asylum. But in those cases where they are pure economic migrants without a valid asylum claim, which is you know 90% plus, uh, we should not allow them into the country, uh, you know, sin ADA to just go out there and work and live and go to school until the, the immigration courts, the backlog, I think, up to about 1.7 million cases, get around to their cases. There's this big dispute going on about removing the power of the immigration judges and giving it to bureaucrats, another sort of gimmick to do this. It seems like there may be a legal or constitutional issue that, that this may not be authorized by Congress after the West Virginia versus EPA case is pretty clear that bureaucracies can't make law that Congress doesn't. What's going on in that realm? And might we see a court challenge or other action in the near future? Yeah, I do believe that there was a court challenge on that. It's, a, it's an interim final rule, I think they call it. And one of my colleagues here at Heritage, um, uh, Joe Edlow, wrote a piece on that, which uh, I believe it's already out on our website, explains uh, really well this complex issue, uh, but that as you as you very well boiled it down, um, comes down to giving uh, authority which belongs in the hands of immigration judges who are trained and who are sworn officers of, of the court to uh, um, uh, adjudicate. And, and it takes that and gives it to um, civil servants who, you know, I'm not running them down. I was a civil servant, a foreign service officer, um, but but who, whose competence it is not, according to the law. And we've seen a lot of this over, I, I wouldn't just blame the Biden administration, but in particular under Biden and Mallorca's, it's regulatory overreach. They're just seeing how much they can get away with, how much they can bend the existing law uh, to, to get in as many people as, as, they, as they want. I mean, one example is humanitarian parole. It, it was designed for, you know, exceptional cases where, you know, a four-year-old needs a liver transplant and can't get a visa for whatever reason. And so the Secretary of Homeland Security and the Secretary of State say, we'll make an exception in this one case. And under the Biden administration, it's being used in tens of thousands of cases, basically in a blanket manner to parole people into the country. Now, you know, imagine you did that in, in uh, the prison system, in, in the criminal justice system. Well, I guess you don't have to imagine, you just go to San Francisco. But if you let everybody out on parole, you're, you're going to see a lot more crime. And in immigration, if you give everybody parole, they're not all going to come in for their hearings. A lot of them are just going to disappear. And based on the fact that ICE is not able to deport anyone, even if they wanted to now, they're all going to be here you know, w without a date. When you talk to the frontline Customs and Border Protection agents, they are so frustrated that their hands are tied. They feel like they're concierge servants, not really enforcing the law. 
But there's going to be some electoral consequence to this. There's been court rulings. There's an election coming up. If the Texas special election for Myra Flores is any bellwether, the Republicans have a very good chance of taking the reins of at least the House, maybe the House and Senate. What happens then? What are the possibilities that maybe a Mayorkas is impeached or that the budget process is used, the appropriations process is used to force the Biden administration to abandon its current posture at the border? Yeah, that's a good question. There was a, a recent coalition of groups that work on immigration um, that, that put together a letter to Congress with some suggestions of what we think uh, would work. Um, but basically, it boils down to enforcing the law. And that, unfortunately, at this stage, is going to take uh, you know the administration to get to get involved. And I, I, I'm not particularly optimistic about that. I think you're right about the uh, the budget power. Um, and the oversight power, Congress needs to take a good look at how the administration and, and DHS is stretching these rules. They're, they're le- essentially legislating where Congress left a big gap. Um, they're, they're taking the law into their own hands and doing things that they're not supposed to do, which is why they're getting sued left and right. I have heard rumors of, uh, of impeachment. Um, I mean, we've seen a lot of impeachment cases in the last couple of years, and they tend to take up uh, a lot of time and, and they don't always get where we need to go. Um, but but I, I, I do think if, if somebody, if, if an official is not doing their job, if they're deliberately not enforcing the law, which is, uh, in Mayorkas' case, his job, um, I, I can see why people would make that case. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly why, why the conversation is. We've had several members of Congress saying, hey, particularly in the Freedom Caucus, Conservative House Caucus, saying that this would be a really good message to send, that there is a consequence for not enforcing the laws on the book. So it'll be very interesting to see if that plays out. So many places to be watching. But as you look at the border, you look at the situation with America's security. A lot of people are worried about the terrorism aspect. There's been several people with terrorist backgrounds that have been encountered, some that slipped through. What is the big issue that you're going to be watching on immigration, on the border, on security in the next few months? I guess I'm really focused on the overall numbers. I mean, I think that the the black swan of uh, a terrorist or a criminal is absolutely out there. You, you, the more people you let in that you know nothing about, the more likely you are to have somebody who is dangerous. I mean, we've we've talked about the people who are getting rubber stamped in. You know, DHS, uh, the, the Border Patrol, or, or Customs and Border Protection at the ports of entry. They will register them in some way. I mean, I assume they're taking biometrics and maybe taking their names down, assuming they have any documents at all. Um, but they're also the gotaways. There, there are an estimated, I can't get a good figure on this, but estimates anywhere up to 800,000, but definitely in, in, the, in the hundreds of thousands of people who have simply evaded any detection whatsoever. Now, we, we've already, uh, I think Heritage has some articles out about um, uh, terrorist plots. There, there was a case in Richmond, uh, Virginia, two guys were planning uh, to, to shoot people on, on July 4th in, in a stadium. Um, you know, there, there are people getting in every single day about whom we know absolutely nothing. And of the 2,000 or so people that came in uh, to the Del Rio sector last week every single day, how many of those people are you know, gang members? If I was an MS-13 member who'd been kicked out of the U.S. two or three times and I wanted to go back to my family, you know, I'm not going to go to the port of entry and knock and say, you know, I'd like to claim asylum because I'm going to get booted back. Or you know, maybe, maybe they'll actually use Title 42 or, or the microprotection protocols. I'm going to pay a coyote and I'm going to go overland somewhere they're not looking for me. Um, so I, I do think the black swan is out there. It, it's just completely uh, impossible to predict. So for me, the focus should be on 
using the tools that we already have, the law that we already have, and somehow trying to convince the Biden administration that the majority of Americans, even though we are a nation of immigrants, we welcome legal immigrants, and we even welcome asylum seekers who are genuinely uh, fleeing uh, on account of, of, of you know, race or religious persecution and so on. But we don't want an absolutely out of control, open border. Yeah, that's really, really important. I want to turn to one last subject before we let you go. You do such good work. You write some really great op-eds and really informative stuff. You had a op-ed after President came back from the Latin America Conference, the, Los Am- the Summit of the Americas, I guess it was called, out of Los Angeles. There was this thing called the Los Angeles Declaration. You wrote a very powerful column back in June. The Los Angeles Declaration is bad news for the U.S. border. Could you quickly explain for our listeners why what went on there is not good for the future of America? What I said was that it was a, a, you know, a, a nothing burger. Um, and when you make something that's, that's essentially a non-binding blueprint or declaration, um, I, I don't think it's going to actually change anything. And that was really um, my concern with it, is that there's no actual meat to it. There's no uh, there's some promises that they already made about agricultural workers. Um, but the, the central problem here is that you have uh, a lot of people in countries in Central America and Mexico who are living in conditions that are much worse than they would be in Northern Virginia or Texas or wherever in the United States. And what we should be doing as a government is trying to do two things at once. One, make their lives better at home through uh, fighting corruption, uh, encouraging investment, making it easier for U.S. companies to do business, um, cutting down on crime, um, but at the same time, uh, cutting down their opportunities and their incentives to move illegally to the U.S. And we're doing neither right now. Uh, we've got these sort of vague plans about tackling root causes through, you know, social justice programs that, in and of themselves, they're not necessarily bad, but they simply aren't addressing the problem. And I just felt like this declaration amounted to a hill of beans. I guess the one danger is it might encourage more people to take the journey just because they think they heard something that seems it's more inviting. But it is. It really had no enforcement mechanism. It, It was a promise without any ability to implement it. Really remarkable. Real quickly, before we go, Simon, how do people follow the good work you're doing at Heritage? What are your coordinates for social media and at Heritage? Um, I think if, if you just go to the, the heritage.org website or to the Daily Signal, the Daily Signals are our, our in-house uh, newspaper comes out comes out every day. I've heard you plug it. Thank you for that. Yeah, I'm a huge fan, huge fan of it. Yeah, we've got a lot of uh, of great content every day. Um, there's a podcast, the Daily Signal podcast, which I actually just started listening to. I, I listen to too many podcasts, um, but it's fantastic. Um, and if you go onto our website, it, it'll it'll take you all through all the different issues, and, and all, you can follow all of our authors. Yeah, it's a great resource, guys. Check it out, dailysignal.com, one of the many great places to go. Of course, heritage.org, another great place to go. Simon does amazing work. His columns are great, and the one he wrote for Fox News still has me chuckling because it really caught the liberal elitists in their big lie, which was that they don't really want to leave this country. They just say so for shock value. Simon, really a great honor to have you on the show. Really look forward to having you back on soon. John, it's been great talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, you as well. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, we'll wrap things up for the weekend right after these messages. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. All right, folks, that wraps up another edition of John Solomon Reports, the Friday edition. We're so grateful you could join us. Hey, we're going to do something special this weekend. You're busy. Maybe you got some extra time to listen to some of the work we're going to do. We're going to do a special Saturday edition this weekend. Yeah, you heard me right. Saturday edition. We've got two great guests that we took from the television show that we want you to hear from. First up, former White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. He's going to come on and talk to you about what it is we learned about the declassified documents, how they got ripped from the American public's hands on the last day that President Trump was in office by a dirty trick, or at least a maneuver, I should call it, at least a maneuver by the Justice Department, who grabbed them saying, hey, we want to make some privacy redactions. But then they defied a standing order of the president to release them afterwards. It never happened. Well, we got that story for you. And then after that, Morgan Otegas, former State Department spokeswoman, has a lot to talk about, about the world we're in today. President Joe Biden's recent trip to the Middle East. Two great guests tomorrow. Check that out. And then Sunday, well, we've got a full lineup for you. Claudia Tenney, the congresswoman. Rodney Davis, the congressman. Attorney General of Indiana, Todd Rakita. Marjorie Taylor Greene. So many good guests coming up. You're going to want to catch that as well. A full week and seven days this week. We got you covered on the podcast. All right, folks, have a great night. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition of John Solomon Reports. Until then, God bless you and God bless this extraordinary country, the United States. Good night. Have a great weekend. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, You can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now.